It's tough not being able to travel right now. Fred Plotkin's using the downtime to study up on history. I love my country as an American, but one thing we're not very good at is long-term memory and planning. Coming up, we go beyond our closed borders to hear how our friends in Italy have been coping with the stay-at-home orders in their cities. And we make an effort to wave and blow kisses to one another to make sure we're both okay. And what it's like to reopen their neighborhood streets and piazzas. I was almost crying. It was just so wonderful to see these parts of the city that really have become my front room and my backyard. These places mean nothing without people. Plus, Gary Ferguson suggests we listen to what Mother Nature is trying to tell us. We think we end at the edge of our skin, and we we don't. Let's check in with friends in New York, Italy, and the backwoods of Montana in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Do you remember when we were feeling sorry for Italy after its sudden spike in coronavirus infections and deaths? News about the coronavirus keeps changing so quickly which only underscores how much we can learn from the examples of other countries as we all try to battle an invisible enemy. We'll check in with friends in Rome, Venice, and Siena in just a bit to hear how they've been coping and how their communities are bouncing back from strict lockdowns. Later in the hour, naturalist Gary Ferguson reminds us that nature can be a good teacher when we slow down to observe what she has to tell us. Let's start today's Travel with Rick Steves with a call to our friend Fred Plotkin in New York City. His work on Italian cuisine and opera earned him a special honor from the Italian government a few years ago. But like the rest of us, he's staying home in Manhattan until the risk of infection improves. Buongiorno, Fred. It's always great to be with you wherever you are, Rick. I follow you. Fred, first of all, you call yourself a pleasure activist, and I, I love that term, and it's sort of uh, reminding me of your passion for opera, your passion for Italy, your passion for cooking, and all the lecturing and writing and, and work you do to turn people onto those joys of life. How is your life like right now in New York City? I'm in the thick of it mm-hmm. in terms of what the epicenter has been in New York, and my philosophy became at the very beginning better six feet apart than six feet under. So I've been very, very responsible, as I encourage everyone to be. If people can get through the plagues and world wars and pandemics of the Mm -hmm. past, we need to learn from what people did or didn't do. Mm -hmm. And that's sustenance to me to study the past at times like this, because otherwise we feel abandoned. The past is there to teach us. And so I've been reading. I've been studying I've used the opportunity to begin to work on a book I've been wanting to write for years but haven't had the time. Time is a gift. We need to use it very, very well, and I I try to. And I've been reminding myself and and my friends that uh, rather than spin our wheels and try to do something we can't do during this period, find a way to make it a constructive time and, and a blessing. When you think about your passions, opera, for instance, to me, I am so saddened by the notion that One of the most dangerous things during this time is being in a choir because the worst way to spread this virus is by singing with gusto, making a joyous uh, sound. That depresses me, frankly, that choirs could be deadly, and now I have to see them in these checkerboards on Zoom. We're all singing solo right now. And, you know, I have many opera singer friends who are very dear friends of mine, and I feel for them terribly. Some of them are managing, and they sing, and they practice, and they study new music. But others feel that without the sound of applause and the presence of colleagues, 
it's not their work. And my feeling has always been that when we go into a theater or a church where people are singing, where action happens and, and air is shared, it's that sharing of the air, the electronic current that happens between humans, that's a huge part of our experience at a live theater as a communal setting and something that virtual technology just cannot replicate. I never call an opera on the radio or on video an opera. It's a report from an opera house. But I'm not saying these things are bad, and right now I certainly am enjoying audio opera as well. But communal gathering is, is something fundamental. You talked about the sharing of air. I've never thought about that, but I've been thinking about it without knowing it. It's a sort of a communion. Of course, when pastors are struggling with how can we be together at church if you can't have the sharing of the peace or communion or fellowship or singing, there's no sharing of air. And when you go to a pub, you want to share that air. When you go to a theater, when I give a lecture, I want the house packed. It's the sharing of the air, and that's going to be an adjustment for us, and we can hope and pray it'll come back. But in the interim, we can be singing solo and doing it in a community kind of way, I suppose. Think of the word inspiration. That's where that comes from. It's about breathing together. We do breathe together. I I want to make a point, too, that New York City during the complete lockdown was incredibly quiet, and I heard birds and all kinds of things I didn't normally hear. And frankly, the air was much cleaner. And as the city has slowly begun to try to rev itself up again, the air is getting dirtier. This is the pleasure activist in me that I'm very sensitive to these things. And although I would not wish on anyone what we've been through, nonetheless, I wish we could learn that there are ways to keep the air cleaner. Well, we're going to have some silver linings coming out of this, Fred. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Fred Plotkin. Fred's got a new project. It's called Fred Plotkin on Fridays. It's a live streaming cultural conversation. And you can learn more about that with our show notes. Fred, you're also uh, passionate about cooking. For me, cooking is an example of new frontiers. I've managed to get into my 60s without ever seriously cooking. My son just dropped by last night. He couldn't believe what he saw. He saw a man that was at ease and having fun in the kitchen. And it's a reminder to me that there are new frontiers for all of us, and we can find that in something like cooking. I love cooking. You know I've written many cookbooks, but part of what I've been doing in this period is reconstructing and cooking dishes that I've had in my travels. So as a result of that, I am rediscovering food that I didn't necessarily make here. I mean, I'm a good cook. But that said, I'm making dishes, say, from Vienna, from Finland, from Sweden, from Argentina, from Brazil, places that I love. And... It's been wonderful to rediscover. Fred, also something that you and I are both passionate about is Italy. And I've often wondered what I love so much about Italy, and it's kind of the opposite of social distancing. It's community. It's the piazza and so on. Have you thought much about the challenges that Italy must be going through now when their country is so much all about physical togetherness? Well, I have, and I've been in touch with many Italian friends. This is what Zoom and different platforms are good for. As you know, I lived much of my life in Lombardy. I went to school in Lombardy, and I worked at La Scala, and therefore that was the region of Italy that was hardest hit. And I've known people there who have been ill, one who died who worked at La Scala. And 
I think, again, what the Italians proved to the world is that they confound expectations because they very faithfully adhered to the confinement for the most part. I'm not saying they were perfect, but they did a much better job at being disciplined than anyone ever expected. Italy is misunderstood. We think of it as creative anarchy, but it's actually passionate creativity and discipline. They could not have made everything in the world that they've invented and given us if they didn't have this discipline and focus. Hmm. And Italians grow their own food, a lot of them. And frankly, they were eating a lot better than we Americans have been eating because they had access to fresh fruit and vegetables in ways that our food delivery system didn't always happen because meat is not as big a part of their diet as it is in ours. Mm -hmm. Uh, They adjusted. And I've been very impressed. But then I was in touch with 90-year-olds who I know there who had been through World War II, had been through fascism. They remember privation. A couple of my cookbooks are really about how older generations of Italians lived and ate when they didn't have anything. To me, Mm -hmm. the flip side of the coin of of food is hunger. Hmm. And the absence of food and how precious it really is, I'm not a foodie, I don't like that term, Mm -hmm. but it's a culture. It's nourishment emotionally, spiritually, historically, and physically. I'm attracted to Italy for all these reasons, uh, and I, I love Italy, but I never thought I would be inspired as an American by good governance and social responsibility <laughs> from Italy. But uh, as Americans, we can look at Italy now with a little admiration, or a little uh, respect, and uh, it's kind of a reminder that in times of crisis, Italy does pull it together. Fred, if Rick, we... I want to mention one thing to you. Next time you're in Siena, go into the city hall, and the frescoes in the city hall are a parable about good government. I still tell people who are planning to run for office to go study the frescoes in the city hall of Siena. Italians, what I love about that country, apart from anything else, they teach us. They are our teachers. They may not realize every treasure they have, so it's up to people like you and like me to help bring it it. to the public and interpret it. And I find that fresco in the City Hall in Siena so inspirational and so poignant when I think of the challenges we're confronting as a society today. Fred Plotkin, it's so good to talk to you. I'd like to just wrap up things by getting your take on how you see the lasting impact of this crisis. Uh, We know we're going to get through it. But what, what do you think the lasting impact is going to be for those of us who are pleasure activists? And do you see any silver lining that you can hope for reasonably? I think that we really have to use this as a learning episode. I love my country as an American, but one thing we're not very good at is long-term memory and planning. We live for the moment, and we interpret rights as being self-indulgence. I don't want anyone who hears the term pleasure activist to think of it as hedonism. It's not. It's about the using your senses to appreciate, to treasure what our senses deliver to us. Mm. And I think that if we use it as an opportunity to really treasure time, treasure the people we care about, hold public officials responsible, understand that anarchy is not profitable, but that good government is profitable. And we've seen examples of good government in our country and in the world. And 
that we also deeply respect the land, but also, frankly, carpe diem. If you've wanted to take the trip to that place you've never been to, go now, as soon as you can. I mean, Mm -hmm. go Mm -hmm. uh, to whatever that place is. Just get there right now. I want to go to Australia. I've never been. (laughs) Fred Plotkin, you've dedicated a life to pleasure activism, to enjoying and appreciating opera and the great culture and country of Italy and cooking, and you're taking it one step further. You're thoughtfully weaving that all together to be an inspiration to so many people and to live a great life that we can learn from. Thanks for all you're doing, Fred, and uh, we'll stay in touch. Thank you too, Rick. Be well. Take care. Fred Plotkin writes for the WQXR Opravore blog, and his guidebook is Italy for the Gourmet Traveler. He's now hosting a weekly Zoom interview with music and cultural friends at idagio.com. That's I-D-A-G-I-O dot com. It's live on Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. I was recently Fred's guest as we reminisced about our earliest travel, music, and food memories. You'll find a YouTube link to that with today's show notes at ricksteves.com slash radio. Up next, we check in with friends in Tuscany, Venice, and Rome to see how they've been faring during the pandemic. It's Travel with Rick Steves. It was only a few weeks ago we Americans felt sorry for our friends in Italy as their nation coped with a steep spike in coronavirus infections. But they took it seriously, and reported infections fell off dramatically there and in many European countries. That means they can experience summer outdoors again to meet friends and explore beyond their neighborhoods with the added precaution of wearing a face mask in public. Before we check in with tour guide friends in Venice and Rome, let's call on Anna Piperato in Tuscany. She's an art historian from Massachusetts whose interest in the city's patron saint led her to settle in Siena. Anna, ciao. Thank you. Buonasera. So, Siena, you live in the most, one of the most beautiful, enchanting, and touristy towns anywhere, and there's no tourists in Siena. The polio's been canceled. Uh, what's life like right now in Siena? Well, things are starting to, you know, come back to life. You know that we had a really difficult lockdown period, a long lockdown period, but now there are signs of life. But as you said, no tourists. I've seen a few Italian tourists with mm-hmm. maps asking me for directions, which is pretty funny because well, <laughs> I usually just work with Americans. You know, <laughs> but, it's, it, it's interesting um, that Italians are the most social people I can imagine, and also mm-hmm. a lot of Italians live in very small quarters. Right downtown yeah. where the action is, you can look out your balcony and see the passeggiata on the street below, and that becomes kind of a prison. How was it like for you to live in, conf- in confinement in a small apartment in a great city? Yeah, it was it was really tough. I'm not going to lie. I mean, I'm quite fine. I like being on my own. But when you know you're not allowed to go out, it's one thing to choose not to socialize. It's quite another when you're forced to stay inside and missing out on the passeggiata. That's where a lot of Italians get their, um, just you know, you get their news of the day. You go have a coffee. You find out yeah. what's happening. And that was taken away. And you probably saw some of those videos with, you know, Italians going outside to their backyard to order coffee through the window just to have some sort of semblance of normalcy. Well, yeah, because in in a sense, Italians have the the smallest square footage of their living quarters, but the biggest square footage of their living quarters because the whole city is their living room, and suddenly you don't have that extension. Tell us a little bit about 
what your feeling was when you finally got out into your beloved Siena as a guide and were able to reconnect with your town, even though it was uh, uncharacteristically quiet. Yes, and it still is uncharacteristically quiet. But the, the very first time I went out, there was nobody. And so I, you know, I held my camera, and now I, I've been using a selfie stick, which I do feel a bit of a twit, I'm not going to lie. But the first time I walked into the campo, I did film myself, and I, I was almost crying. I was, it was just so wonderful to see these parts of the city that really have become my front room and my backyard. And it was, it's been really emotional. And I think everyone is feeling overwhelming emotions when they see people after having months of lockdown or just, you know, seeing the lights on in your local bar when they finally open up again. And so I do feel, as I say, a bit silly sometimes with a, with a selfie stick, but it's been a great way to document kind of how the city has been coming back to life. Slowly, slowly, pian pianino. It's very, very slow. Little course, by little. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm so interested because for me, Italy is not a place that I think of as good governance, <laughs> i got to say. you know, <laughs> no. uh, Italy is sort of like a bella chaos, I think, beautiful chaos. Mm. But mm. Italy has done remarkably well uh, as far mm. as what is, good for the, what is good for the common good. What's your take <laughs> on governance and how Italy has managed with this? Because you were hit really hard and really early, yes. and you've suffered hugely from this crisis. Yes, and of course, um, I don't think any one leader could have been able to do things much better in a way, but um, our prime minister, regardless of where you are on the political side of things, he really has stepped up and has been kind of that calm leader and presence that a country hit this hard needs, and so he's I've enjoyed, quote-unquote, watching the press conferences and the way he fields the questions and answers all of them. And, of course, he has his own, you know, political agenda in some ways. But the first thing to do was to make sure that the country is safe, right? And it's still very much something we all have to work towards. Thank goodness that that Italy and Italy's government recognizes that the common good takes care of the common wealth. I can hardly wait to track how Italy comes out of this. Uh, Italy inspires all of us when we think of uh, the hardship you've been through and the ritual in the evening of, of thanking your medical workers and the way Italy share, mm-hmm. Italians share their music in a time when, mm-hmm. when choirs can no longer sing together. Yeah, and actually the other night I did hear, I, I heard some contrada songs being sung out the window. Mm-hmm. Yes, it was a certain time of evening and I'm sure a few spritzes had been imbibed, but just to hear people singing in praise of Siena and in praise of their Contrada, which is the sound of summer. It was really heartening to hear. And the little children now, because now that we're allowed to walk out more, there have been the little kids with their flags and drums walking around and Mm. banging their drums and Mm. waving their flags in the street. And it's just, it's that little, it's a glimmer of hope. Anna Piperato, thanks for checking in with us, and we'll be sure our listeners are able to um, find your guided walks, your virtual tours are wonderful. First place I want to go is back to Siena, (laughs) and back to enjoy that beautiful extended living room when, piano by piano, we will all come out of this. Take care, Anna. Thank you so much. Ciao, ciao, ciao. The city that gave us the word quarantine from its own history with epidemics has been eerily devoid of tourist crowds lately. 
Stacy Caboni joins us on the line now on Travel with Rick Steves for an update on what it's been like in her neighborhood of Venice. Ciao, Stacy. Thank you for having me, Rick. Bonasera. Bonasera. Now, in Venice, we think of it as full of crowds. You're an American who's now a, a resident of Venice. You've been there for a long time. There's actually a community in Venice. What's it like without any tourist crowds in Venice? Spectacular, Rick. Am I allowed to say that to you? You sure are. <laughs> I mean, we're obviously in the shared business of tourism and and bringing people here and teaching them about the beauty of this city, but I have to admit what a joy it is, now that we can finally go out a little bit, to have the city to ourselves. It's, it's quite pleasant. You know, I've never been in Venice without piles of crowds. Tell us what it's like. How do you enjoy this moment? Rick, I've this lived moment? here 20 years. Neither have I. Yeah. <laughs> it's my first experience for me, too. What do you hear? Um, what do you smell? What do you see that's different? The, that, that has been the, the spectacular part. We have so much more time now everywhere in the world to reflect and to observe and to really take it all in. And in Venice, I was writing a lot more uh, frequently about the birds having taken over the city. I mean, the bird song in the morning, in the evening, just seemed to go all day long. Was it the hungry seagulls or or the Merlot birds? We just seemed to have many more birds Mm. uh, present. The sound was more present. Maybe in the past it was drowned out by all that human noise. Yeah, and now, Stacey... Venice has a history of quarantines, a maritime republic, uh, dealing with the plagues. Even great churches are dedicated to plagues and and, and epidemics that hit the town. Give us just a quick thought about that, being in Venice with a new pandemic, but they've had a history with that. It's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, I never would have... um, uh, Someone had asked me, what do you think you'll be doing by the time you turn 50? I never would have thought I would be living my life on an island in quarantine, no? Uh, the, it's fascinating to, to imagine how we take these paths in life, and you're exactly right. We have many churches. Several of them are on the island of Judeca. And I know so many of your listeners are conscious of our crisis about cruise ships and things like that. When you see those photographs of cruise ships, they're coming through the canal of the Judeca. It's part of the city of Venice. It's just a little bit separate from, from the main island. And those three churches that you can see sometimes in the background in those photographs were all dedicated and built after various plagues that had hit, had hit the city. So the architects were commissioned by the church to build these buildings, uh, places of worship, to thank our Lord that things had passed over and we were still breathing. My favorite plague-related church you and I have spoken of this before, is the Salute Church. Mm-hmm. That's the big, ornate dome across from, across really from San Marco, that when you look across exactly. the canal. And yeah, the Punta uh, della Dogona, it's very close mm. to where the merchants used to have to come in and pay their commissions and their taxes and, and declare what it was that they were bringing in on their, on their vessels. So you can step in there now, and you can imagine that centuries ago, people stepped into that that church and and prayed for deliverance from the the virus of the day. And today, Venice is a community. In In your blog that so beautifully takes me right there, you talk about what you refer to as your precious island community. What's it like to be in touch with your community during this crisis? It's wonderful to to know your neighbor to be there for your neighbor, to make sure that that they have enough food. We have a very elderly community. We don't have a lot of young people in this community. Specifically in my neighborhood, 
one of the struggles was the, the, the silence, the solitude of the original, let's say, 60 days of isolation, because there were so few families in my particular neighborhood, so I couldn't even hear people some, you know, movement or anything. I have a, a, a senora who lives across the canal, and we make an effort to wave and blow kisses to one another every single day to make sure we're both okay. Thumbs up, you know, kisses for a good day, that sort mm. of thing. It, it's, you know, making sure that if she needs anything, she knows she can ask me and I can run out and get it for her. Well, Stacy Gaboni, and, just to know that there is, the, in all around the world, there's people recognizing community and the value of taking care of our neighbors. Maybe that's the silver lining of this crisis that we're in. Best wishes in Venice, and I'll hope to see you soon when there's uh, a little more action on the streets, okay? I look forward to it, Rick. Thank you very much. Thanks. Take Bye good now. care. Be well. Life on Pause has brought Italians a feeling they're just not used to. Isolation. Francesca Caruso joins us now from Rome, where, with the relaxing of the city's strict lockdown rules, life is beginning to resemble something closer to normal. Francesca, it's always a delight to talk with you, even under strange circumstances. Hi, Tarek. It's a pleasure as always. Well, we in the United States have been looking at Italy with great concern as the coronavirus hit your country uh, particularly hard, and you guys were locked down particularly hard. What was your life like in Rome during this period? Well, during the lockdown, um, it was rather strict. So for a very long time, uh, it meant that we literally could not leave the house unless we needed to get groceries or to the pharmacy, really for very serious things. So I think I left the house for groceries three times in the two months. What was the most difficult thing for you personally during the lockdown when, when, when you were confined to your apartment? Well, um, I was alone, and I realized I had never been alone for days and days and days on end. Uh, everybody who was dear to me was very far away. Mm. So I think it was that, uh, that disconnect uh, from, from them. Yeah, I, I always thought I liked being alone, but I'm having second thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think that some countries can deal with that easier than others, but... Uh, you know, the, the charming thing about Italy for me is the piazza, the passeggiata, the big hugs, the kisses on the cheeks, the commotion of a crowd. That's the joy of Italy. And you haven't had that for the last few months. Oh, the, the hugging thing is a tragedy. Mm. I, I think I keep telling people, when we can hug, I'll hug each of you for half an hour. And <laughs> <laughs> just to try to, I think you know that uh, the Italians found ways of creating community, even in the lockdown. You know, there were some days that at 6 o'clock, which is the time of the day when they told us what the situation was and how many victims there were, we went to our balconies and we we sang together and uh, we clapped for the medical workers. So we did find ways. Mm, That's great. You know, now things are starting to open up and you ventured out and you wrote in your, you've got a wonderful blog. You talked about going to St. Peter's. Share with us, as Italy opened up, uh, what it was like for you to go to St. Peter's, the greatest basilica on earth. Well, you know, it, it was kind of wonderful because uh, the reopening was very, very gradual. The first, uh, you know, for the first days we could go to the park and then the piazzas and then churches and St. Peter's. So I went alone. It was uh, mid-afternoon. There was nobody there. And I realized in my entire life I had never experienced that. And I have to tell you, the first thing I noticed that when I walked in, which was extraordinary, was the silence. Mm. 
and the possibility of, of really feeling the space in a way I had never been able to before. And this intimate dimension was really extraordinary. And the interesting thing was that in the silence and in the emptiness, it, the imagination was able to evoke travelers of the past in the way that we always like to do, no? And I felt all the pilgrims and all the travelers who weren't there and yet had been and will be in the future, they were there. So it was intimate and um, and also in company at the same time. It was really extraordinary. You know, I'm, I'm looking for silver linings in this crisis, and there's one right there. When we travelers get back to Rome and we go to St. Peter's Basilica, there'll be a lot of people there, but maybe we can remember that there are the, the spirits of the people for the centuries, that have, that the pilgrims that have gathered there and looked to the sky and, and struggled to be close to God. It was beautiful, but you know, silver linings, I really do want to say one thing. There's one thing that I'm going to take away from this experience, Rick, and it's the importance of community. Right. I don't think I have ever felt so close to, at first, my people, the Italians, because we were all going through so much, but then... You know, as it spread, I felt a sense of deep community with the world. And I really hope that we can take this with us, that we can preserve it, the sense of being all connected, of caring, and of of wanting to be kind. This is the thing I want to uh, take away. And your words help me realize that it's not just community with people who are alive now, but also community with people who are who walks the earth and traveled before. So I think it's, it's, it's a very precious thing that we could take away if we wanted to. In your journal also, you wrote about how you had a reunion with a friend of yours who's a fellow guide, Nina, and you couldn't yes. touch each other, but you, you just burst into tears. Uh, talk about meeting your friend Nina and then enjoying these places of, where, where communities come together in Rome. Well, you know, with me, Nina was also alone in the in the lockdown, so you know we really empathized with each other, and you know we realized after the lockdown she was that we were the first person who loved us, and that we loved that we actually saw in person after we oh. think fifty one days we counted. Sixty one days. And of course we cried. I mean, yeah. it was, and I don't think I'm ever going to forget that, Rick. I'm never going to forget that moment of just looking at her and thinking, this is a person who knows me, who loves me. This is a person I love. And, you know, the piazzas, I mean, this country is all about that, right? I mean, how many times did we laugh about the fact that the Italian language doesn't have the word for privacy? But these, these places mean nothing without people. A piazza without people, I'm so sick of hearing about the bare bones of the beauty that we're rediscovering the beauty. No. If there are no people in the piazza, the piazza is nothing. This is a city that for 2,000 years has been seen. It's made to be seen. It's made to say things. If there is nobody to listen to what it has to say, it has no meaning. It's a very sterile uh, beauty. It needs people looking at it, thinking about it, talking about it. That's the whole point. Mm. Little by little, with patience, we'll repopulate those squares. Piano, piano, we will. Rome is waiting for everybody, and we will hug in Rome. All right. Again. Francesca, thank you for joining us, and take care. Thank Best you. wishes. It was a pleasure. And to you. Ciao. Ciao, ciao.
You'll find web links to our guests with this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. Send us a quick email about how you've been making the most of the global lockdown where you live. Our address is radio at ricksteves.com. Gary Ferguson gets us ready to learn from Mother Nature. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-RICK. Gary Ferguson is no stranger to the wilderness. He's trekked 500 miles through Yellowstone. He spent more than 25 years exploring North America's backcountry trails and rivers and thinking about it and connecting with nature. And he reflects and then he shares in his books. His new book is called Eight Master Lessons of Nature, What Nature Teaches Us About Living Well in the World. In this book, Gary examines mystery, loss, and and how even the animals can teach us how to have a more fulfilling life. Gary, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be with you again, Rick. Thank you. So, you know, in our world, we're all so urban. We're all amped up and faster and faster, and I want delivery tomorrow, and I need more stuff, and I just don't have time, and how are you doing? Oh, really busy. Well, me too, you know. And it just seems to be getting us farther and farther away from nature and the tranquility that nature has to offer. Your book is, is kind of a guidebook to, to the value of the tranquility of nature. Yes, and perhaps it's my age. I'm getting a little older now in my early 60s, and I thought it was time to look back at all of those miles of trail. You mentioned the, the rivers I've paddled, the different places in the world I've gone to uh, savor the wilderness, and to sort of collect what the the great lessons I've learned along the way, not just me, but with the help of a lot of wonderful scientists, botanists, geologists, ecologists, and not just to better understand how nature thrives and what allows it to keep going even in the wake of big dis- disruptions, but then to you know, acknowledge the fact that we are nature too. Humans are no less the product of, of evolution than is a, a cheetah or, or a mm-hmm. wolf. And sometimes we forget that when, in fact, uh, I think the task before us is to reclaim or realign ourselves with those processes and those qualities of nature that really are our superpowers as well. To see ourselves as part of nature, that's kind of fundamental. You've got eight points in your book. I mean, the title is The Eight Master Lessons of Nature. Let's just, we'll we'll have to go pretty quickly, uh, which is not a very good way to be tranquil in the middle of nature, but just (laughs) use these as little springboards so we can understand what, because people like you who have spent so much time in nature, I find more and more are almost evangelical, venturing back into the city and reminding us, hey, hey, there's more to life than concrete and speed. Your first point is mystery. Wisdom begins when we embrace all that we do not know. What do you mean by that? Well, it's it's true, and mystery is a great way in. It pulls us to sort of the edge of the stage. You and I have talked before about how travel and going into nature is so valuable because it, it sort of disrupts our familiar environment and makes us start to reconsider things from uh, places that we've perhaps never occupied before. And mystery does this. It moves us to the edge of the stage and leaves us very happy to be there. Uh, One of my great inspirations for leading the book with mystery was Einstein himself, who said, mystery is the source of all science and all art. In fact, he used to encourage his uh, students that if they had a choice between knowledge and mystery, they should always choose mystery. And I would say that when I've been stuck uh, both with personal issues as well as professional conundrums, 
walking into the mystery of nature is is a way to settle down, a way to get in touch with our innate capacity for a, a bigger view than we hold in a lot of the uh, hours we spend during the day. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Gary Ferguson, and Gary's going through point by point the points that make up his book. The book is called The Eight Master Lessons of Nature, What Nature Teaches Us About Living Well in the World. Point two, life on Earth thrives thanks to a vast garden of connections. So we're all interconnected. We need to appreciate that, don't we? I think that's so important, maybe the most important uh, lesson of the book. We think we end at the edge of our skin, and we we don't. Uh, We walk under a tree, and it releases not just the oxygen we need, but chemicals called phytoncides, which strengthen our heart and fortify our immune system. We, We are able to process food and turn it into energy to think because of microbes that didn't exist when we came into the world that set up house in our gut and stomach mm. and, and turn those uh, foodstuffs into nutrition. And on and on it goes. We really are connected in a way. In fact, I would say that at this point, uh, science is uh, having a very hard time knowing where you end and the rest of the world begins. Boy, that is so important to get away from this obsession with self and, and this egocentric sort of approach to nature. And probably sets us up to be better stewards of nature when we recognize that we're part of a network. Your third point, the more kinds of life in the forest, the stronger that life becomes. The number one predictor of resiliency and sustainability in a natural ecosystem is diversity. The, the more members of beings in a forest, the longer and the more likely a forest will survive over, over hundreds, if not thousands of years. And we're finding that out now through social science that that applies to humans as well. Uh, scientific research, uh, the most significant articles are now sort of recognized as coming from diverse groups of people, different racial backgrounds, economic backgrounds. And so, once again, what we see going on in the natural world as far as diversity is something that we can consciously put more into our own lives to increase our own uh, capacity to, you know, to achieve what we set out to do. You know, that fits a, a sermon my pastor recently shared with us at church where he made a case for weeds as opposed to the perfect lawn said, the perfect lawn is a weak thing. You want more diversity. I love that. That's so true. And, you know, you could uh, you could relay that to uh, the monocrop cultures that we tend to yeah. grow and cutting down the various trees of the forest and only replanting them with one species. They're much more vulnerable than they would be otherwise. And what's driving that is is greater productivity, but it's kind of short-sighted. Your fourth point, healing the planet and ourselves means recovering the feminine. This is one of the great blunders of of humankind is that we oppressed uh, the feminine, of course, girls and women, uh, thereby cutting out half of the wisdom of the population. But also um, feminine archetypal qualities, I guess you could say, such as relationship and nurturing and taking the long-term view in leadership styles. Uh, Once again, we can see this kind of leadership happening with elephants and lions Mm. and wolves, where females play a vital role, not just in reproduction, but in sustaining uh, the pack or the herd or the pride over the long haul. And we have a lot of mending to do, a lot of healing to make sure that the actual women and girls, uh, as well as the perspectives represented by the, the larger archetypal feminine, are part of our daily decision-making. Mm. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Gary Ferguson. His book is Eight Master Lessons of Nature, What Nature Teaches Us About Living Well in the World. It's a collection of scientific studies and personal stories that reveal how nature can enrich our daily lives. Gary's website is wildwords, 
www.animalcousins.net. So, Gary, the point number five is, our animal cousins make us happier and smarter. The animal that comes to my mind first is one that I've spent many, many years watching, studying, writing about, and that's wolves uh, from the point they came uh, back to Yellowstone in 1995 and 1996. It was interesting to see how they balanced not only the work they do of getting enough food to eat, but how much time they spent with play, how much time they spent tending social bonding. Once again, we're back to that male-female thing. The, the male wolves don't just lend size and strength. They also help the lead female who has given birth and is uh, nurturing the pups to go out and get food for them, to play with them hours hmm. on end. The style of governance that a wolf pack or a lion pride has is really based on letting an individual member of the group have as much freedom as possible, but then calling them in when it's time to serve the group as a whole, such as hunting or taking care of the young. Routinely, some of the packs would find lingering snowfields uh, on the edges of the Lamar Valley, and they would, as a pack, run up to the top of the snowfield, get on their backs, and slide down with their legs <laughs> flailing in the air. <laughs> I love it. Just absolutely oh. had the best time, ran up, did it again. Young wolves would take pieces of uh, elk hide from a kill they'd made and toss it up in the air and catch it and you couldn't help but think, oh, that's why dogs love to play Frisbee. Uh, so yes, an, an extraordinary amount of time spent in play. If we can waltz through life knowing that other creatures in the animal kingdom are joyful also, that's pretty cool. That gives us a better connectedness and to get a better appreciation of each other, doesn't it? It does, and it, and it perhaps calls our attention to the fact that maybe we need to make a slightly bigger priority out of playing ourselves. Right. Okay, your point number six is... We live on a planet with energy beyond measure, yet life doesn't waste a drop. Yes, it's amazing. We have so much energy available by virtue of the sun to drive this planet, and yet all of uh, life is extremely efficient. And while we humans are less prone to need to be efficient as far as how we do some of our physical things, I'm very interested in some of the research coming out with neuroscience, especially showing that some of the inefficiencies we willingly walk into as far as worry and rumination and regret and anxiety about what may or may not happen in the future tends to actually have physiological consequences that mm really truncate our energy levels over the long haul and also limit our ability to see the problems that face us uh, in, a, in a kind of holistic way and come up with solutions that are not just solutions in the moment but have long-term sticking power. For some genuine relief from the anxieties of everyday life, Gary Ferguson is recommending a few ways the natural world can help us right now on Travel with Rick Steves. His book is called Eight Master Lessons of Nature, What Nature Teaches Us About Living Well in the World. You'll find more about Gary's earlier titles, which focus on Yellowstone National Park, the Rocky Mountains, and wildfires in the American West, at Gary's website, wildwords.net. Gary, your point number seven is, after a disaster and disruption, nature teaches us the fine art of rising again. Yes, when you watch a, a devastating wildfire move through, it's very little time uh, before that ecosystem that looked to be completely devastated starts to rise again and in some cases is actually stronger a year or two later mm. than it was before the fire hit. I uh, once again lean very heavily metaphorically on this for my own life and I talk to a number of people who also 
want to look at nature and see why that's possible. And the reason it's possible is because the essential ingredients of what make for a good and vibrant life are protected from that disaster. The the seeds are still there under the ground ready mm-hmm. to sprout. The pollinators are still available to come in and pollinate the plants and allow them to respread very quickly. And these are the kinds of things we have to pay attention to in our lives, too, so that we can navigate the difficult circumstances and not just get stuck in the hole that those circumstances sometimes push us into. I also think that's a little bit, of, a little bit um, kind of rosy when you think also that we need to be humbled as a species. I think nature can do just fine without human beings. And if we create something that is disrupting the environment, nature can just have a rash or have a, a, a fever and get rid of us and then be resilient and carry on and, and human beings are long gone. Well, you're absolutely right. Um, we need nature more than nature needs us. There's no question about it. Because maybe that's the solution. Maybe that's the solution to global climate change is just get rid of the people. Well, uh, and that could happen, but I would suggest also that that disruption in the environment, as ecologists call it, we also know that disruption in the embeddedness environment, as psychologists call it, is what happens when humans go through uh, severe circumstances. Mm -hmm. That tends to take us to a place where we have the very best opportunity to kind of rewire our brains, rewire Mm -hmm. our lives, and take advantage of things that we haven't paid attention to in the past. So nature can prepare us for surviving these tragedies. The eighth point, your last point, old growth. The planet's elders can help us be better at life. When you look at the natural world and specifically mammals, whether we're talking about dolphins or orcas or lions or wolves or bonobos or chimpanzees or many other, you see that a successful, healthy community is made up of the vibrancy and the strength of younger members and absolutely the wisdom of the elders who have been around longest and know how to live life in the face of, say, a drought or a food shortage uh, or something like that. So to establish a human society that not only celebrates the uh, ideas and the improvisation skills of the youth, but leans on the elders, makes a space for the elders to share what they've learned across their lives is absolutely critical for us to move forward in a healthy way. I just think this is so inspirational. Gary Ferguson, author of The Eight Master Lessons of Nature. This book will clearly inspire a lot of people. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Dusty is calling in from Lakemont in Georgia. Hey, Dusty, thanks for your call. Hi. Hey, Rick, thanks for taking the call. I work as a ranger. Occasionally I've found if I'm on a really long trip, especially if I'm by myself, uh, one often thinks that you can solve lots of problems, uh, when you go out by yourself uh, and spend a lot of time in the wilderness. And I've found, essentially, that you can do that, but you have to be either um, really aware of yourself or your own best friend, uh, because there's nobody else to uh, break it up. Uh, you have to work through whatever you have all by yourself. There's nobody else to talk to. Um, if you're in the wilderness for a long period of time, Uh, you will very much have to come to terms with your own thoughts and your own ideas, and you have to work through that. So I would advise anyone that that really is intending on spending a lot of time in the wilderness, especially on their own, um, to work through those issues before you go out, because you can truly become your own worst enemy. Gary, does that make sense to you? Yeah, that's a wonderful point. And one of the things that I think happens for me is 
my biggest problems and inability to kind of handle what the wilderness throws at me is a matter of me taking my own habits of separation thinking, if you will, the, the self involved thinking into the wilderness where it simply doesn't work because the fact of the matter is while you're alone in the wilderness you're actually uh, at a phenomenal level of connectivity and you're dependent on the you might call it benevolent disinterest of the natural world to hold you up and to allow you to to be there and stay safe and so to some extent if you're able to go into the wilderness and heal that separation thinking and really see the sense of community that exists when you're out there and then essentially carry it back. I also want to say that we absolutely need ways to do this in the cities. We need mm -hmm. natural areas so that we can touch those kinds of thoughts and those kinds of contemplations besides everybody having to head out to the wilderness because the fact of the matter is a lot of people just don't have that opportunity. Well, that's a, a whole new frontier in uh, opportunity for this kind of self-awareness that nature can teach us. Dusty, thanks for your call. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks, Rick. Yeah. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Gary Ferguson. His book is The Eight Master Lessons of Nature. Wrap this up by taking us to a point where you were all alone with nature that had a particularly uh, memorable impact on your perspective. Well, I think one of the uh, one of the times is is back with the wolves again in Yellowstone, and there was um, an event where one of the alpha females' partner, an old wolf called Old Blue, uh, they were a very strongly bonded couple. Uh, old Blue finally just got uh, worn out and and died. And uh, what happened afterward is this female wolf, number fourteen decided to leave her pack, leave her young pups, which no scientist had ever seen before, and go off on what might be best considered really a grief journey. She spent a week in the most inhospitable winter terrain imaginable. She was all by herself on trackless uh, landscapes. And then finally, after about seven and a half, eight days, she came back, rejoined her pack, took her leadership role and moved on. And it was a reminder to me, not that wolves grieve necessarily like we do, but that we're all traveling together in this planet and that we have all come up with ways to be in this life and to keep efficient and to keep creative and to keep going that are not at all dissimilar. And I take very great comfort in that sort of connection, in that kinship that the natural world presents to us whenever we dare to look. Gary Ferguson, author of The Eight Master Lessons of Nature, What Nature Teaches Us About Living Well in the World, thank you for reminding us that the great classroom is the outdoors. Thank you, Rick. Oh, little children, come, come and go. In the pretty valley that is down low Oh, little children, come, come and go In the pretty valley that is down low There I can reach you, there I can help you In the pretty valley that is down low There I can reach you, there I can help you In the pretty valley Travel with Rick Steves is produced low. at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton. Isaac Kaplan Woolner and Casmore Hall. We get website support from Americhitnacone, promotion support from Sheila Gerzoff, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to Peak Recording in Bozeman, Montana for studio help this week. You can listen again whenever you like from the radio section of our website. It's at ricksteves.com radio. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe, researching and writing guidebooks. His now classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. Rick Steves' Italy is America's top-selling Italian guidebook, 
at Rick Steves Online Travel Store, you'll also find guidebooks for Rome, Venice, Florence and Tuscany, plus Rick's Italian phrasebook. To learn more about Rick's guidebooks for Italy and beyond, shop online at ricksteves.com.